In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. In our Gospel text for this evening, Jesus warns us against participating in what I suppose we could fairly call the hypocrite's liturgy. He warns us against taking part in grand public displays of supposed repentance that outwardly purport to glorify God, but inwardly are just an excuse to build up our own glory. Jesus doesn't tell us not to pray or give to the poor or fast, of course. These are all holy things. Rather, he tells us not to do these things the way they're done by the spiritually two-faced, by those who want the approval of men rather than the approval of God. Now, here's the strange thing about this. In almost every case, the hypocrite's liturgy is quite obviously hypocritical. These are self-glorifying rituals that people undertake, and it's always quite clearly self-glorifying. These things are transparently vacuous and empty. So, we should find the hypocrite's liturgy to be repulsive and offensive and want nothing to do with it. This is a bit like Jesus having to warn you not to embarrass yourself in front of company. Why does he have to issue the warning? The strange thing is, in the end, we find this hypocrite's liturgy to be compelling and seductive. And the more we see others do it, the more we want to do that ourselves. Why is that? In the end, I think the answer is really quite simple. Our sinful nature hates the gospel. It hates the free gift of God's love and wants to believe that love is something we have to win, wants to believe that righteousness is something we have to earn ourselves. And so that sinful nature wants to convince us that when we do good, silence is a sign of our failure to have done good enough, while applause is a sign of our success. If we can confess, if we can impress men, if we can impress this world, that must mean that we have impressed God. So when we see people performing the hypocrite's liturgy, our sinful nature doesn't see it as something false and insincere, at least when we think about doing it ourselves. We see that as a very viable path to God. Gain the favor of men, and you'll gain the favor of your Lord. And this was certainly the case in Christ's day where the people were bewitched by the Pharisees and all their seeming righteousness. When the hypocrites would gather an audience before they gave to the poor or prayed, when they made sure everyone knew they were fasting through their disfigured faces, when they were, as our youth might say, spiritual tryhards, it was obvious what they were doing. It was obvious that they were using the name of God to impress men and thus glorify themselves. But blinded by their sinful nature, the people couldn't see what they saw. They still believed that they had to pray open the arms of God with their works, they had to pry those arms open with their works. And the people couldn't see what was right in front of them. We struggle with this same blindness. 
When celebrities and public figures bring a camera crew with them in order to document as they feed the poor and look in teary-eyed agony at the suffering of the lowly, it's obvious that they want to be seen. And we oftentimes mock and belittle them for this, but we do the same thing in our own way. We draw an audience every time we show compassion. We boast of our charitable acts on our social media pages. When we've done something kind or merciful, we find a way to shoehorn it into practically every conversation we can. We may not have the money to name children's hospitals after ourselves, but if we did, we would. And we do the small things that we can to make sure that people know that we are good hoping that their approval is a sign that we have the approval of God. Likewise, I think you can find a strong connection between the kind of empty prayer and empty fasting Jesus is condemning in our text today with the kind of political grandstanding we see in so many places. Prayer is calling upon God. Fasting is a practice of self-discipline meant to tame your sinful vices and bring you closer to God. Well, we see this in the world all the time. Our political leaders make sure the cameras are on before they start blustering over our nation's problems, perfectly crafted into sweet little sound bites that make the rounds on the news and social media, knowing that their followers will praise them for their bravery. But all the while, as they're crying out to God to rid our nation of all of these evils, they're not actually trying to solve those evils through the actual authority that God has given them, through their legislative powers. At least very often that's the case. Likewise, we roll our eyes when we see celebrities get up and lament the state of the world today, warn us of the dangers of climate change, and implore God with their disfigured faces to rescue us from these evils. All of this they speak five seconds before boarding a private jet. So we're disgusted by these acts of of hypocrisy, and yet we share them. We grandstand as grandly as we can, even if we can't draw as big of an audience, but we amass whatever audiences we can to hear us lament how hate-filled our world has become while we still fill more hate, as we still pour more hate into this world. We devoutly follow the hypocrite's liturgy by publicly repenting of other people's sins. We lament how our nation has turned away from God. And if anyone were to ask, in what ways has our nation, have we as a people turned away from God? that we suddenly doesn't include us anymore. All of the sins for which God is punishing us, all of the sins for which our nation needs to repent, are conveniently not the sins we commit. Repent. Turn from this fruitless exercise that cannot bring you closer to God. Don't believe that the secret to God's favor is unlocked in the applause of your neighbor. God's favor is not a secret. It's been revealed to you.
through the nail-pierced hands of Jesus Christ. So when Jesus tells us not to partake in the hypocrite's liturgy, our great and wonderful and comforting Lord is not just giving us a warning. He's also giving us a promise. When Jesus tells us that we shouldn't do these things, He's also telling us we don't have to do these things. So when Jesus tells us that we should give in secret, when He tells us that we should pray where no one can see and that we should anoint our heads and wash our faces so that no one is aware of our fasting, what's He ultimately saying? He's telling you, you don't need anybody else to tell you that you're good in order to be good in the eyes of God. You could be hated by every single person on the planet. It would not change the fact that your Father in Heaven loves you and cherishes you. So you don't need to win the love of the world in order to have the love of God. You already have the love of God. In fact, Jesus is saying that is precisely what I came to give you. So once you were impoverished by your sin, once you were poor and enslaved by a debt that you could never pay off, enslaved to the commandments you could not unbreak and repair, but in that moment, in that moment of your unfathomable debt, your Father in heaven loved you, cherished you, and He came to your aid. Your master would not rest until he had paid the debt his servant owed him. And so he sent you Christ who poured out the currency of his own blood upon the cross and erased your debt with that priceless substance. There in that moment, Jesus Christ destroyed your poverty and clothed you in the riches of God. There at Calvary, Jesus Christ performed the greatest act of charity that mankind had ever seen. He stared at you, someone who had nothing to offer him and who would cost him everything. And he paid that full debt in order to make you his own forever and in order to give you every treasure of his Father's kingdom. Once you were a sinner unworthy to call on your God, unworthy to utter his name in prayer, and unworthy to have your supplications even enter his ears. But out of love for you, before you ever even knew to call upon him, God came to your aid. At the cross, Jesus Christ became your Savior. And with His dying words, He unlocked the ears of His Father in Heaven to your cries. And He blessed you to know that your Father will hear from your own throat, your own cries of agony, the voice of His beloved Son. Once through your sin you were starved and lifeless. You were corrupted and killed with spiritual hunger. But then God the Father sent His Son 
to fill you with good things. He sent Jesus Christ to feed you with His forgiveness, with His salvation, with His very flesh and blood. And with those treasures, with those heavenly yet earthly gifts, He restored your life, gave you back your strength, and gave you the right to be His child forever. God has no greater treasure. He had no greater treasure than His sinless, spotless Son. And when you needed the life of that Son in order to live, your Father in Heaven did not hesitate. He gave up the greatest treasure in the universe to make you His greatest treasure. Does this sound like the behavior of a God who needs to be convinced? Don't despair if no one sees your good works and if no one praises you for them. Because even if no one sees them, God sees them. And He views your works as good because He declared you to be good and holy through the blood of His Son. So don't be afraid. You don't have to impress God. He's already yours. He already calls Himself your Father and calls you His Son. He already loves you, and His love, in fact, is so certain that you can serve Him in a dark room, giving in secret, hiding your fasting, speaking prayers that no one can hear a million miles away from anyone else. And in that moment, you can be as certain as the sun rising tomorrow, and in fact, even more certain, you can be that certain that, he will, that your Father in Heaven sees and hears all of this and rejoices in it. So on that note of confidence, let's talk for a moment about the imposition of ashes. Why did we offer them tonight? Well, on the one hand, in the Old Testament, putting on sackcloth and ashes was a sign of sorrow and repentance. And there is something quite beautifully visceral about having the ashes pressed upon your forehead as you heard the words, dust you are, and to dust you shall return. It is a stark and powerful reminder of our mortality. And it's also a beautiful promise when those words are spoken with ashes formed. I've almost gotten myself in a lot of trouble in the last couple of times I've tried to say that word. <laughs> uh, the ashes formed in the, in the mark of the cross. There is a, there's a beautiful, visceral honesty to that. And for many of us, it is a great and helpful way for us to begin the Lenten season as we contemplate our own mortality and our own need for salvation, as we begin to journey with Jesus to the cross during this season of repentance. But of course, on the other hand, this practice is not commanded by our Lord, and it's certainly easy for the practice of imposing ashes to become part of the hypocrite's liturgy which is why the early Lutherans largely discarded this practice back in the 1600s. We've picked it up again 
I suppose because it's arisen in various Christian circles throughout the world. And we can sometimes get a little bit jealous when other people get a little bit more ritual than we do. But there was, I will certainly say, a very legitimate concern in the past that the practice of imposing ashes was a way for us to boast of our super-duper repentance before the world and was thus a violation of Christ's words in our Gospel text for today. These words about not disfiguring your face or practicing your righteousness to be seen by others. If you're like me, you may have friends on social media who post smiling pictures of themselves with their ash-covered foreheads on this day, and it always strikes me as not quite right. A little bit like taking a smiling selfie of yourself at a funeral. So then, how should we view this practice of the imposing of ashes? Well, I like to approach it this way. You're under no obligation to receive them, of course. But if you have received the ashes tonight, instead of going out to dinner, walking around the grocery store with your face covered in this mark of repentance, go home and wash your face in joy. As a side note, by the way, be careful washing your face with water. The uh, palm ashes and the water don't get along well, can burn a little bit. Uh, we talked about this this morning with the, with the kids in chapel. So, uh, and, Matt, and I said, I don't think it's going to be a big deal. It's never been an issue before. And then I washed off the ashes this morning. And I was like, all right, my face is burning quite a bit now. So be a little cautious with that. But however you do it, however you remove the ashes, rejoice to know that this sign of sorrow, that this sign of death has been taken off of you. As you wash those ashes off of your forehead, think of your baptism and the glorious moment when our Lord clothed you in His death and resurrection and gave you the promise that though you will die, you will not die. So go home and wash your face knowing that you don't need anyone else to see your ashes in order for God to see your repentance. He already sees it and has already called you His own forever because your once sinful face has now been covered in the glory of Christ. It radiates before Him with the light of Christ's transfigured face. And that's the face of God's beloved Son, God's beloved daughter. Remember that you are dust, and remember that to dust you shall return most certainly. But remember also that dust you shall not remain because the Son of God has already done what the hypocrites thought they needed to win and accomplish themselves. The Son of God has already opened the ears of God to your cries, has already opened the eyes of God to your face. The Son of God has already conquered death and already given you every ounce of His victory. So whether you wear ashes or not, if you do wear them, don't wear your ashes like a hypocrite. Wash them away like a confident child of God who knows that your Father does not have to be swayed or convinced to give you the love He has already given you. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.